right, guys, welcome back to Revive School. Here we are in the book of First Corinthians. Should be an interesting one. We're on lesson 17, but really it's the first lesson of, uh, of, of First Corinthians, but the 17th lesson of the Pauline epistles, the Paul's letters that he is writing to believers. Now, we have a first and second Corinthians. There's a lot here. When we talk about the title of this book, okay, it obviously is listed and named after the city of Corinth. Now, interesting enough about the city of Corinth. Now, remember, you have to understand something. The first lesson of a book, right? We always love to slow down, kind of look at the backdrop of everything. Look at the history, look at the author, look at the, the date, and just kind of take your time. So we'll do that a little bit more today than we would normally. And even before we even get into this, I do want to just kind of look at Mindy's painting. I think this is, this is a totally different painting than what Mindy has normally done before. Here we have nine hands, one little hand, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine hands. And Mindy just says these represent the nine corporate gifts of the Holy Spirit. We'll get into that, but I just want you to have this understanding. Nine corporate gifts of the Holy Spirit, the red rose, okay, uh, represents the garden element is the red rose. It's a symbol of love. Now, this is what's so cool about Mindy's painting that all of these gifts are here, but without the love component, these gifts are just a, a, a gong. They're just a noisy sound that nobody wants. You have to have, you have to desire love in order for the gifts to work. Now up above, Mindy's uh, hands, okay, is what you would have as a cloth. And this is the element that ties First and Second Corinthians together. So Mindy always paints these paintings when they go together of like first and second of something. It's called a diptych. Okay, and so this is going to be you're going to see how this ties into the second Corinthians. Now, this veil okay, is lifted from the second painting and it represents the Holy Spirit blowing through the curtain flowing in the wind of the spirit covers all of us on the body of Christ. So the Holy Spirit is essential in order for the gifts to work, but it has to be driven by love. It's a really powerful picture. Now, we always have one words or one or two words that describe um, the Messiah in that book. Now, Kevin, this is our 29th book. Is that right? Correct. This is our 29th book. This is our 503rd, did I say that? 503rd lesson. And so it gets a little bit harder to be like, hey, what should we call the Messiah in this book? But I do love this. And it's, it's in from 1 Corinthians 15.45. And the way we would describe the Messiah in this book, it's known as, Jesus is known as the last Adam. Here's why I believe the last Adam fits into this painting pretty well. It says, so it is written, the first Adam, which is actually Adam, Adam and Eve Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, which is Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. So here you have the Messiah, who literally through the Messiah becomes a life-giving spirit. And hence, if there's no Jesus, the spirit of God is not moving and blowing uh the gifts, it sounds kind of weird, but he's not giving us the gifts, empowering us with the gifts. And so you have to have the last Adam in order to have the gifts. So there's a lot there we'll unpack, but I just kind of want to give you that bigger picture because of the fall of man with the, the first Adam. The second Adam comes in and saves uh, all of mankind from the first Adam. And because of that salvation, we have a life-giving spirit pretty cool picture of what you're going to see. And it's going to be portrayed all throughout the book of 1st and 2nd Corinthians. I want to go over this because I think this is really important to understand 1st Corinthians. Okay. He wrote this from Ephesus. Okay. I'll just put that down there. 
Okay, roughly, uh, he wrote this from 80, I'll just put 80, 55. We know that it was written, he was on his third missionary journey. And here's Paul's plan. Paul's plan was to remain at Ephesus to complete his three-year stay, okay, until Pentecost. Like, this was his plan. I'm going to stay here until, I'm going to be here for three years until Pentecost. And then he hoped to, I love this phrase, uh, winter at Corinth. Like, he hoped to be in Corinth during the winter. It's kind of maybe like a Florida. (laughs) You know, snowbird in Corinth, that was his hope. And his departure for Corinth was anticipated even as he wrote. So he was planning all along to be there. Okay, so this is kind of the process that we're talking about. Now, that's some of the authorship and the date. Now, the backdrop of this is is that Corinth, when you see it here, okay, I'm going to pull up my notes over here. You know, obviously it's located in southern Greece, okay? It's in the Roman, um, the Roman province of Achaia, 45 miles. So this is a 45-mile distance from Athens, okay? It's in the lower part of Peloponius, connected to the rest of Greece by a four-mile wide uh, isthmus, uh, bounded on the east of, of the Gulf on one side and the west on the other side. Okay, here's what's kind of interesting. Uh, for centuries, all of north and the south land traffic had to pass through this city. Okay, so the traffic flow is constant. Now, this is kind of interesting. Since travel by sea around Polymapaeus involved the 250-mile voyage that was dangerous and time-consuming, most people actually put their ships on what they called skids and rollers, and then they just took it across on land, okay, to get through the place. Corinth was literally, uh, you know, in Indiana, the crossroads. Corinth became the crossroads of the land. If they didn't want to go by sea because it was such treacherous waters, that's what they would do. Now, crazy enough, there really wasn't much good about Corinth. In fact, its name uh, became synonymous with debauchery and moral depravity. Here's what they mean by this. They would use this term to Corinthianize, which meant gross immorality and drunken debauchery. To Corinthianize meant a whole lot of sin is going on. Well, why? Because everything that was going on here, everybody kind of had a reputation. People knew. So if I said Vegas, what do you automatically think of? Gambling. Gambling. It had that stereotype, whether Vegas is all like that or not, I don't know. But that was the title, that was the stereotype of Corinth. And in fact, um, Kevin, can you go to Romans 1, 18 through 32? Now remember this, Paul's writing from Corinth, right? You remember this? He's writing from Corinth to the Romans. And so as he's describing situations of sin... I mean, even in verse 24, therefore God delivered them over in the cravings of their hearts to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They worshiped and served something created instead of the creator who is blessed forever. I don't know if that when Paul was writing this, that he's looking out the window, somebody said, and he sees these things. You know, verse 26, it just says, you know, again, God delivered them over to the degrading passions for even their females exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. And it keeps going. The males in the same way also left natural relations with females and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Males committed shameless acts with males and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty of the error. Just imagine writing to the Romans, you're looking out the windows and this is what you see. Maybe it's like the big billboards at Vegas. 
You know, maybe it's like these big things that you see in New York, whatever the context is. To Corinthianize means like this was a place that was not of the Lord. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, you get a very, very specific list. Like these are the things that people, uh, like it's, this is kind of how they're labeled. Don't you know that the unjust will not inherit God's kingdom? Do not be deceived. No sexual immoral people, idolaters, adulterers, every kind of homosexual Thieves, greedy people, drunkards, verbal abusers, or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom. The only way you come up with these lists, if you see them. Now, yeah, I'm sure he had his past. I'm sure he had his history. But I do think it's an interesting picture of how Corinth is described. Kevin, if you go to 1 Corinthians 5.1, there's even more of a graphic one. And I want to tell you this because this is what... The church of Corinth is facing on a consistent basis. The world that's coming at them and they have to decide, will I walk in holiness or will I give into the world? And in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 talks about incest. It is widely reported that there's sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles, a man living with his father's wife. Like the Gentiles were even repulsed. It was so bad, but incest was taking off in Corinth. Church of Corinth is a backdrop, was founded on second missionary journey here. It began in a synagogue hosted by Priscilla and Aquila. Cool enough, Silas and Timothy, they had joined them. And most Jews resisted, but not Crispus. If you'll go to Acts 18, 5 through 8. One of the, the fun ways to study Paul's epistles is that you take his writings and then you find them in the book of Acts when he actually did the mission work. It would be like us going through the cities and all of a sudden writing about Seattle, right? But we're writing about Seattle from Minnesota. You know, it's that kind of concept. And so in Acts 18, uh, uh, 5 through 8, here you're going to learn about, if you'll go to the, Paul's teaching in the synagogues, right? He's interacting in the synagogues. And then there's one synagogue leader, Crispus. Crispus decides, he hears this whole thing, right? He hears this whole story. And in verse 8, Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed the Lord along with his whole household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. So here you have, like a leader of the synagogue was converted at the very beginning. So you're going to see some themes in here as well. I'm just going to list them so you hear them and then we'll pick up on them. One is you're going to see here about proper worship. You're going to hear about uh, spiritual identity. We're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. You're going to hear about spiritual gifts, nine spiritual gifts. You're going to talk about God's judgment on believers and what is the perspective of, of idols. You're going to hear about the cross, but at the same time, you're going to hear some serious challenges that have divided our church today. Signed gifts. Our gifts that we talk about in 1 Corinthians, still applicable today. We're going to talk about divorce. We're going to talk about universalism. All of these things the Apostle Paul addresses with the church in Corinth. Why? Because it's such a worldly city, they have to hold strong and firm on the foundation of the cross. Okay, guys, I think we've done a big picture. Our word is the last Adam, and the last Adam is the one that gives a life-giving spirit to all of us, and the life-giving spirit then allows us to have the gifts. And if you'll look with me in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9, you'll begin to see Paul spells it out. He says, Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will and our brother Sosthenes, 
Okay, Sothenes was a ruler of a synagogue as well. If you go to Acts 18, 17, I think this is important because remember, you should tie in, you should be able to tie in 1 Corinthians a lot of times to Acts 18. It says, then they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the judge's bench. But it didn't matter. None of these things mattered or concerned Galileo. So Kevin, if they're beating Sosthenes, why? Why are they beating him? He's going against their traditions. And he's embraced Yeshua. So now Paul, an apostle of the scripture, says Christ Jesus by God's will and Sosthenes, our brother. Now they're beginning to articulate to the church of Corinth, to God's church of Corinth. To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called as saints with all of those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both their Lord and ours. And Kevin, I think you'll recognize this verse in verse three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul Stets, he, he really just, it, it's a theological theme in all of his epistles. He says in verse 4, I always thank my God for you because of God's grace given to you in Christ Jesus. I have to wonder, as an apostle, what does that look like, you think? Like he says, I always thank my God for you. So is it like once a day? Is it before meals? Is it when I think about something, if I think about, you know, my friends, I thank God always? Like, I just want to learn practically how does he do this? But either way, he's extremely grateful for, from the Lord that he's been given these friendships. And he says in verse 5 that by him, you were enriched in everything, in all speech and in all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, we've got nine gifts, okay? Nine gifts centered around love, breathe life in from the Holy Spirit. And he says, by the way, you're not going to lack any spiritual gift, any spiritual gift as you wait for the return of Christ. So what I hear here, Kevin, is that if we need a spiritual gift, he's going to give it to us. As you're waiting for him to come back, that means you're doing kingdom work, which means he'll give you whatever you need in order to advance the kingdom of God. I really believe that. You will not lack any spiritual gift. You know, it's like what I say to Nadia. You know, because you're going to learn this. Sometimes speaking in tongues is meant for unbelievers. Okay, don't, don't, don't check out on me, okay? But you might need that in order for somebody to come to know the Lord. And I say to Nadia, Nadia, I hope and pray you get the gift of, spirit, uh, of tongues. I don't, I don't want them, Dad. I don't want any of those gifts. All I would just say is this, as you eagerly wait for his return, he will give you everything that you need for him to get the glory. And then it says in verse eight, in this process, he'll also strengthen you to the end. So if you're getting tired and weary, amen, so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He'll give you the strength. He'll give you the energy. Even though we still sin, it says we'll be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though we still sin while we're here on earth, when we come before the Father in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, all he sees is, yes, that's a child of mine. Yes, I see a child who is literally um, without accusation because of our relationship with Christ. And in verse 9, it says, God is faithful. Um, now, hang on real quick. I, I do want to say something. Go back to verse 8, Kevin. I don't want to miss this says, we'll be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a lot of different languages about his return. All I want to just do is list a couple of these. You have the day of the Lord our Jesus Christ. Okay. You have the day of the Lord Jesus. You have the day of Jesus Christ. You have the day of Christ. And then you have the day of the Lord. 
You have multiple things. Now, the day of the Lord is going to, the contrast there is that there's the judgment upon unbelieving Jews and Gentiles, whereas the other ones are like, okay, we're getting ready for the return of Christ. Just a couple different things. Like you hear these languages, you know, constantly about what is what and what does it look like. All I want you to be aware of is you might see the day of our Lord Jesus Christ and you might see the day of Jesus Christ. Same thing. Now, Many people will start, when they start talking about this, they'll be like, hey, where's, where's the rapture in all of this? Are we going to be raptured? Are we going to be taken out as Christ comes back before, uh, in the middle, or in the after of tribulation? It doesn't really talk about it right here. All I want to just say is, is doesn't really matter. You want to know why? Because if I go back to the text and it says that we are eagerly, what is that phrase, Kevin? We're eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're actually waiting for his return. It doesn't matter when he comes. It just means we're ready. And that's what I want us to get. I want us to get to that point is that we believe that God is going to give us the gifts that we need. He's going to give us the strength that we need so that we will be blameless before the Lord at his return. Verse nine says, God is faithful. You are called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let me just, I want to just kind of, so here you have the last couple phrases. We have been called to be holy. Okay, in verses 1 through 9. Okay, Wearsby then says in verses 10 through 25, we are called into fellowship. You know, one of my favorite assignments at Dallas Seminary was? This is going to sound weird and like a nerd. Uh, we had to write a paper on 1 Corinthians. And I had never experienced commentaries. I had never experienced study notes before. I had never, and I, I ended up turning like, I just remember like this paper became like, it doesn't matter how long, it was really, really long. And uh, I just remember it was on 1 Corinthians. You guys, I want to I challenge you. Like, it doesn't matter if it's 1 Corinthians or Titus or Philemon or the book of Jude. I want you to go deeper than you ever thought you could. Like I want you to look at the text and say, man, what is he after here? Like in verse 10, you know, he says, Now I urge you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no divisions among you. Well, if you, if you took just that part right there and you went into your church and you said, hey, look, Paul says we're supposed to agree that there's no divisions. Like, would we really be serious about that? That you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. Like that all of the church of Corinth would be on the same page. Like that's what the Apostle Paul wants. And I'm thinking, dear Lord, come to Dallas. I can't even get one congregation to work with another congregation. That's what I want for this church. There's creating division already, but we've been called into fellowship as one body. The question has to be asked, is Christ divided? Verse 11, it says, For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there is a rivalry among you. Oh, hey, did you hear? Chloe's household has better couches in her house. That's how it happens in America. This guy's got a better building. This guy has a better sound system. I don't know what the argument you know, is, but the point is that there is a rivalry. How do I know? Because in verse 12, it says, What I'm saying is this. Each of you say, Hey, I'm with Paul. I'm with the Apostle Paul or, hey, I'm with I'm with Apollos who he messed up in Acts 18, but he's getting it right now. No, uh, Paul doesn't know how to preach. He's a bad speaker. In fact, we'll hear about that in a little bit. Have you seen Apollos lately? 
but I'm with the rock. I'm with Peter. He's the best pastor in the town. And some will just say, hey, forget Paul or Apollos or Cephas. I win it all. I'm with Christ. And there's a division in the church. And in verse 13, the question is asked, is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Or were you baptized in Paul's name? Like, why are we saying, why do we even care about these people's names as the leading like that? I thank God that I baptized none of you. Except Crispus and Gaius. He's back. So that no one can say you were baptized in my name. In other words, it's not about the name. It's about Christ. When are we going to get this in America? Why do we have to put our names on so many things? What if we just started putting the name of Christ everywhere? Verse 16, he says, I did, in fact, baptize the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't know if I baptized anybody else. <laughs> I do think it's important, you guys, um, to understand uh, it doesn't matter who's doing the work. He just wants us to do it. He says in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to evangelize. This is interesting here. He says, not with clever words so that the cross of Christ will not be emptied of its effect. What he's really saying is, first of all, the priority, you guys, is the gospel. The gospel is more important than the baptism. The baptism doesn't save somebody. Now, somebody will disagree, I'm sure. But the reality is, is that we know faith comes, uh, salvation comes in faith alone. So he says it's important to at least mention to get out the gospel, to evangelize the truth. Now, he does put baptism in Matthew 28, but he doesn't say that it saves. Salvation comes through faith and faith in Christ alone. And I like it because, you know what I like about verse 17? The gospel that's shared, it's not because he's the best communicator out. Like, I, I just, I have to say that because I think sometimes we feel like, I feel like, like I have to have it all polished. I have to have it the best. I have to communicate. The, like, it's the word of God. I don't, I don't have to add anything to this. Christ said, man, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to evangelize. And by the way, it's going to come out funny sometimes. Kevin, remember when you said that word yesterday? Mm-hmm. That's the kind of stuff that makes me laugh because I do it all the time. And that's when you know that when people get it, regardless of how we sound, that that's the power of the gospel. No offense, Kevin. But we're all there. So just relax and know that it's the... Cr when you start adding stuff to it, it's almost like you're saying the gospel is not good enough. It says in verse 18, for the message of the cross, look at this. It's foolishness. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's God's power to those who are being saved. And you'll see this theme, you guys, of foolishness in verse 21 and verse 23. Uh, it says in verse 19, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and I will set aside the understanding of the experts. I mean, he's quoting, you guys, Isaiah 29, 14. Where is the philosopher? Where is the scholar? Where is the debater of this age? Hasn't God made the world's wisdom foolish? For since in God's wisdom, the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. Man, I can't tell you how many times I have shared something, poured my heart out, and it was awful. And somebody will come up and say, like, hey, that, that truth changed my life. But I don't know how. And then I'll come back and I'll be like, man, that was the best message I've ever preached. Nothing. Nothing. 
Like to me, it is solely the Holy Spirit moving somebody's heart to hear the message regardless of how you communicate it. There's beauty in that. In verse 22, it says, For the Jews, they ask for signs, and the Greeks, they seek wisdom. But here's what we focus on. We preach Christ crucified. And when we preach Christ crucified, Paul says, hey, it's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. In other words, like, the Messiah, like if a Messiah is killed on a tree, it's a sign of a, of a, of a curse. It's a sign of a, like it's not a blessing. Deuteronomy talks about this. If you're on a tree and you're dead, it is a curse. So that's a stumbling block. There's no way that Jesus could be the Messiah because look how he died. That's a stumbling block to how we know yet, it says in verse 24, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. You want to experience God's power? No Christ. You want to hear from God and get some wisdom? No Christ. That's what it says. Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. I love this picture. Jesus is God's instrument of God's wisdom. Jesus is God's instrument of his power. You want to experience God's power? You want to experience God's wisdom? Put your trust in Christ. It says in verse 25, because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. In other words, when you have nothing, and all you have is him. It's better than any human strength. Cool picture. You know, I, 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 D.A. Carson says something interesting. Like we, we put like a lot of stock in what Christ did on the cross. Here we have that cross over there. <laughs> D.A. Carson said, what would you think if a woman came to work wearing earrings stamped with an image of a mushroom cloud of an atomic bomb dropped over Hiroshima. He says, what would you think of a church building that had on the external uh, massive graves of Auschwitz? Like the same sort of shocking horrors associated with the cross and crucifixion on Calvary. That cross represents life for us. Here's the beautiful part of the book of Romans. He's no longer on the cross. He's no longer on the cross. And Gordon Fee says it this way. It is hard for those uh, in the Western Christian uh, mentality where for 19 centuries, like this has been the, the primary symbol of faith, this cross, to appreciate how ultimately mad the message of a God who got himself crucified by his enemies must have seemed to a first century Greek or Roman is crazy, but that's what we put our stock in. We put our stock in the last Adam who overcame the sin of the first Adam. And so he says in verse 26, Brothers, consider your calling. Not many are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen, says what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one can boast in his presence. In other words, God wants to use the nobodies so he can get the glory. He wants to use the people that are saying, God, I don't have a clue. People don't even know who we are. But God, we want you to get the glory and the honor. He says, good, now, now I can work in you. He says in verse 30 and 31 to close it out, but it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became God-given wisdom, for us. And look how 
Look how he's described. He's our righteousness, sanctification, redemption. In order, as it is written, the one who boasts should boast in the Lord. So 1 Corinthians says, hey guys, you put your trust in Christ. Your life is changing. It has nothing to do with you, everything to do with him. All right, big backdrop, lots to talk about. What does it look like to be holy and embracing fellowship? Guess what? We'll get into more of that tomorrow. Thanks.